Uh, today's scripture reading comes from John 8:31 to 36. Listen now for God's word. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. One of, the, um, one of Jesus's favorite uh, rhetorical devices uh, that he liked to use for pedagogical purposes uh, was the phrase, you have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say to you. And so when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, He's talking about, you know, what our society teaches us, what our culture teaches us, what our families teach us, what our institutions teach us. But then he counters those messages by saying, but I tell you. And so the reason why we're doing this series called Counterchism, debunking our secular narratives, is because we are constantly being catechized and instructed and given storylines of what to believe by our secular culture. And the transporter of these secular messages are the docu-series that we watch on Netflix, the podcasts that we listen to, uh, social media, the articles that we read, TikTok, Clubhouse, the communities that we're surrounded by. We are constantly being inundated uh, and inoculated by different secular messages. And I think that if uh, Jesus were present with us right now, he would say the exact same thing to us. You've heard that it was said at that Clubhouse meeting. You've heard that it was said in that article. You heard that it was said in that lecture, but I say to you. And so what we're doing in this series is we're taking a look at one uh, cultural value uh, that our secular culture values and that we are bombarded and being shaped by. And what we're doing is we're deconstructing that thing because ultimately we believe that that thing will leave us empty and unfulfilled and there is a better way of viewing that thing uh, based upon what the Word of God has to say. And so we took a look at origin a few weeks ago. We took a look at uh, the topic of meaning. And today, uh, I want to take a look at perhaps what is the most important cultural value of our society today, and that is freedom. The sociologist Robert Bella said that our most important value and virtue is freedom. So what is the secular view of freedom then? The secular view of freedom is this. It is the absence of constraints and being able to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. That is the secular view of freedom. Absence of constraints and being able to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. Or to put it more in a biblical framework, uh, Jesus' view of freedom was, your will be done. 
And if I do your will, I will experience true freedom and fulfillment in my life. The secular view of freedom is not your will be done, but the secular view of freedom is my will be done. And I think the, uh, the Disney character Elsa is probably uh, a good representation of our modern view of freedom. And I think it was Tim Keller who was the first one to point this out, despite the fact that I nearly watch it every day because of my kids. But there's one scene in Frozen 1 where Elsa says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Now let's just deconstruct that for a moment. No right, no wrong. So what, what Elsa is saying here is there's no such thing as absolute morality. All morality is relative. I determine what is right or wrong. No right, no wrong. Don't tell me how to live my life. And then she says, the second part, no rules for me. That is the absence of constraints. Don't limit me. There are no rules for me. So moral relativism and the absence of constraints, therefore I am free. And so that is the modern definition of freedom. And what I want to do is to simply counter that. What I would like to do is to sort of deconstruct that to show that this message and view of freedom by our secular culture is ultimately harming. It's actually ultimately oppressive. And that the way to experience true freedom is the way that the Bible and Jesus' teachings view freedom. So, uh, Pastor Brian just told you a fish story. Let me tell you another fish story. There was once a fish named Nemo who lived in this tiny fishbowl. And one day, Nemo happened to watch The Little Mermaid. And he saw how Ariel, being a, f- a mermaid herself, living in the water, she wanted to be free. And she wanted to walk on land and be with the people. And she does. She's able to walk on land, be human, fall in love. And Nemo watches that and he says, I want to be free just like Ariel is free. So one day he decides to ram into his fishbowl and the fishbowl starts to shake. And he rams into the fishbowl and the fishbowl starts to wobble. And he rams into the fishbowl a third time. And finally, the fishbowl tips over and Nemo is now free, except for the fact that now he is slowly dying. And so the point of this story is this. Freedom can't mean the absence of constraints. Freedom can't just mean being able to do whatever I want to do. Sometimes being able to do whatever we want to do can lead to a slow death. And sometimes the absence of constraints or the absence of the right safeguards can lead to a slow death. Nemo was never meant... He was never meant to live on land. He was created with gills to live and flourish and find freedom in the water. And so what I want to say is that freedom is not just being able to do whatever we want to do, but true freedom is doing what we were created to be and to do. Freedom is not just the absence of safeguards, Rather, true freedom comes from the presence of the right safeguards. Now, here's the question. Well, what are the the right safeguards? Who gets to decide? So take a look with me at verse 31. In verse 31, it says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, 
you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So here Jesus says, if you hold to my teachings, or if you obey my teachings, or if you uh, follow and align your life to my teachings, this is the truth. And if you hold to my teachings, which are the truth, then, if you hold to my teachings, then you will be set free. Now that's a little bit abstract, so let me make what Jesus is saying here a little bit more concrete with two examples, okay? Chances are, uh, based upon how many people are in this room and and how many people are watching online, chances are there, there might be one or two people here today and, and watching online uh, that are really, really bitter right now. You are super angry at someone and you are holding a tight, tight grudge against someone. Now, when you are bitter and you are, you are enraged at another person, you, you know what's happening? You are being enslaved by your own anger. Now, typically, what our culture would say is that when you're, when you're pissed off or you're angry at someone, get even. Don't let them, don't let them get away with this. One-up them. Get revenge. And, and that is the way to sort of assuage the bitterness that you, that you feel. But the truth of the matter is that's, that doesn't work. Uh, if anything, you will be enslaved and oppressed even more for seasons, if not years, if you are unable to do what the Bible would say to liberate you from your bitterness, and that is forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a virtue in our secular culture. Getting even is, and yet forgiveness is one of the paramount pillars of Christianity. What is the cross if not the greatest expression of freedom? And it is only when we forgive, even when we don't want to forgive that person, that we can finally be freed from the oppression that we are enslaving ourselves and in, in, in the imprisonment that we are subjecting ourselves to. Now, that is easier said than done. I'm reminded of Nelson Mandela when he was finally set free and the door was open and he said, as I approached the gate that would lead to my freedom, he said, I knew if I did not leave my hatred and bitterness behind, I would still be in prison. And that is precisely what the Bible would say with regards to how we can be freed from the bitterness that we have towards our parents, friends, relationships, etc. Now, you might be thinking, that's a great example, but you know what? That's a pretty easy and convenient example. I think there are other ways that Christianity is quite oppressive. So let's talk about a more difficult example than just bitterness. Let's talk about sex. In many ways, our modern culture views the Christian ethic on sex as regressive, not progressive. Sex is not liberating from a Christian point of view, but it's actually quite oppressive and enslaving. So let's talk about sex, and let's talk about how Christianity can give us a sense of freedom. Let's jump back to the first century world. First century world, it was normal for a man to be married to a woman and also to have multiple wives, multiple mistresses, and to frequent the brothel. That was not abnormal in the first century world. That was quite normal. Meanwhile, women had to be faithful to their husband, and they could not do what their husbands did. So along comes Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he says, uh, and he says, <laughs> And he says to the women, women, your body does not belong to you. 
It belongs to your husband. And you can almost hear the husbands beating their chest, saying, you know, roaring and saying, that's right, your body belongs to me. But you know what's interesting in 1 Corinthians 7? Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say to the women, hey, women, your body belongs to your husband, but he also flips it. And he says, but I say to you, men, your body does not belong to you either. It belongs to your wife. So you can't just do whatever you want to do. You can't just sleep around. You can't just go to the brothels. You can't just have all these mistresses. Now, you can imagine when first century women were hearing this for the very first time, when it was normal in that culture for men to behave like the way that they did, you can imagine how empowering and freeing it was for women to hear this progressive message, not regressive. And similarly today, in our culture, we view sexuality, our Christian view of sex, not as progressive, but as regressive. Let me read you something uh, on the first page of your bulletin from Aldous Huxley, the writer of A Brave New World and uh, many other writings. And one of the things that Huxley once said was this, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. So what he's saying there is, you know, uh, life can't have meaning. If there's meaning, then we have to live a certain way. But if life is meaningless, we can do whatever we want. And he goes on to say, the liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain system of morality, like religion. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. And so Huxley encapsulates very well how we view sex uh, today. We don't want religion or Christianity to impinge on our sexual freedom because when it does, we can't do whatever we want to do, again, which is the modern definition of freedom. Okay. So how do we think about that? Well, I like the way that Ray Ortland described sex when he talked about sex like a fire. And, and Ortland says that when, when fire is in the right constraints, when fire has the right safeguards, like in a fireplace, it can flourish and it can warm up the entire house. But when there are no constraints, when there are no safeguards, when the fire can do whatever it wants to do, whenever it wants to do it, it can burn down the entire house. And similarly, the same is with sex. When sex has the right safeguards in the covenant context of marriage, it can flourish because it's doing what it was designed to do. But when sex is outside the designs of God's safeguards, it's no coincidence that our sexual liberation has also led to things like the Me Too movement. It's no coincidence that our sexual view of freedom has also led to abuse. It's no coincidence that our view of sexual liberation has also led to relationship issues, trust issues, so on and so forth. But when sex is put back in the right, with the right safeguards, it can truly, truly flourish. The Christian view of sex is not regressive. It's always, always been progressive. Just because something is countercultural doesn't mean that it is not on the right side of history. 
And so this is what Jesus is saying when he says that if you know my truth and my teachings, it will set you free from bitterness or whatever you're going through. You know what's enslaving? Read with me in verse 33 to 34. Jesus says this. They answered him, we are, the people say this, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now take a look at the first part again where the people say we're Abraham's descendants. What do you mean we need to be free? We're not slaves to anyone. And I remember reading this and thinking, haven't you ever read Exodus? Like you were slaves for 400 years to the Egyptians. What do you mean you've never been enslaved? Haven't you read the prophets? You were enslaved by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. Now you're enslaved by the Romans. What do you mean you've never been enslaved by anyone? And what they were referring to is, okay, politically, yes, we've been enslaved left and right throughout forever. But, you know, spiritually speaking, because we're ethnically Jewish and we're descendants of Abraham, we are free. It's those Gentiles, those non-Jews that are in trouble. They're the ones that are really enslaved. We are God's people. We are the ones that are free. Everyone else is encaged. And you know what? Similarly today, I don't think modern people would say, hey, we have Abraham as our father. We're descendants of Abraham. You know what modern people would say? Modern people would say this. I don't need to be free. I am a descendant, not of Abraham, but I am a, I am a descendant of Rousseau. I am a descendant of the Enlightenment. We are more free than ever before. If anything, it is religion, tradition, parental expectations, society, institutions. Those are the things that impinge my freedom. We are freer than ever before. And so when modern people think about Christianity, they think about it like a straitjacket and like I can't do anything with my life. Have you, heard, have you, ever, heard, have you ever had conversations Coworkers and friends that say things like that. A part of the reason why for modern people, we tend to view Christianity as a, a straitjacket and suffocating is because we are descendants of Rousseau and the Enlightenment. And if you're unfamiliar with the works of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, take a look at the, um, the, the, the first page of your bulletin again. And in the social contract, if I'm not mistaken, I actually think it's the first line. Uh, Rousseau utters probably the most famous thing that he's ever uttered when he says, man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. And what Rousseau is saying here is this, the moment we're born, we're actually really born free, but it's other things that enslave us, parental expectations, again, like uh, religion, institutions, society, cultural things. And, and so this is why as modern people, we, we tend to be anti-authority. We're anti-institutional, we're anti-religious, uh, we're anti-tradition. And so the primary way of finding true freedom today as descendants of Rousseau, no limitations, no rules, and what I'm going to do to find my authentic self is I'm going to look inside to see what my heart desires. And if my heart desires something, I am going to act on that desire. And I don't want anyone else to tell me what I should desire. And once I act on those desires, then I will experience true freedom. And yet what Jesus would say here is, no. If anyone sins, they are enslaved to sin. And what the Bible would say is we are all sinners. And therefore, we are all enslaved to sin. And when something enslaves us, it has a power that is over us. 
And anything that has a power over us other than God will be oppressive and will not be liberating. And so what I want to do is to sort of deconstruct and expose our modern view of freedom and show us how it can actually be quite oppressive. And the way that I want to finish up is showing us how Jesus and his teachings can give us the freedom that we need. I mentioned before that uh, the formula for our modern view of freedom is the absence of constraints and following our heart's desires. And let me poke just two holes with our secular understanding of freedom. The first is from Barry Schwartz, a psychologist. Many of you may have actually heard his TED talk. And Barry Schwartz talks about the paradox of choice. And what Schwartz says is that too much of a good thing can actually be a bad thing. Modern people think that if we have unlimited options and unlimited choices, then we'll be free. But what Schwartz is saying here as a psychologist is too much of a good thing can actually be a bad thing. So I'll give you an example of this. Have you ever gone to a diner before? It's like 500 things on the menu. Do you feel free? Probably don't. You actually feel quite indecisive. You don't know what decision to make. Have you ever gone to a restaurant, though, where there's only five things on the menu, not 500? You actually feel more free by the limitations, by the safeguards of just those five things than the option of having 500 things. This is what Schwartz calls the paradox of choice. This is what Soren Kierkegaard refers to as the dizziness of freedom. When we have unlimited options, what ends up happening is a paralysis of analysis. And so this is why diners will have 500 things, but they'll say, here are five specials that we have. Because they, they want to constrain you to those five things because unlimited options can actually be more oppressive than freeing. This is also why Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Cuban, Steve Jobs, they only wear three or four things all the time. They don't have unlimited options. They always wear the same t-shirt and jeans all the time because for them, it's actually more freeing, not less. So sometimes when we have unlimited boundaries and unlimited options, it can be more impressive than not. Let me give you a second one. Sometimes uh, the Bible would say that our desires are actually not good. So for modern people, the way to fulfill our hearts is to follow our heart's desires. No constraints and being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want. And what's interesting is that the Bible would say is sometimes do not follow your desires. Don't trust your heart. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all else. That is the exact opposite of every storyline you hear in Disney, where it's always about following your heart. And what the, gospel, what the Bible would say is, no, your heart is broken. It's, it's flawed. It's sinful. It's corrupt. Sometimes there are good desires. Sometimes those desires are terrible. If I gave my kids the options to have candy for dinner, they would choose that option every time. But you know what I do? I take that freedom away from them. And I limit their freedom to green things so that they can flourish. Sometimes the things that we desire, there's a difference betwe between this. Not everything you desire is desirable. Sometimes the things that we desire should be undesirable. It could also be a relationship. You really desire to be in a relationship with this particular person. All of your friends are saying, no, don't do it. But the heart wants what the heart wants. 
So you follow those desires and what ends up happening is that that relationship can actually be quite toxic and quite oppressive. And so what the Bible would say, uh, contrary to our culture, is this, don't follow your desires sometimes because they don't always lead to your freedom and uh, to your flourishing. And so if unlimited options and our decision-making can't be trusted, where do we go from here then? What steps should we take to experience true freedom and true liberation. Well, to jump back to Rousseau, what he said is man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. And the truth of the matter is none of us are born free. You were born at a specific time, a specific generation. You're born a specific ethnicity, gender. You're born a specific culture, neighborhood. You are not free to choose those things. You are born, whether you like it or not, to those, you are enchained to those things. Man is not born free. But we can choose what we enchain ourselves to. And as the New York Times writer David Brooks would say, uh, he, he says what we enchain ourselves to can either oppress us or give us freedom. So what should we enchain ourselves to? Should we enchain ourselves to Freud? sexual freedom? Should we enchain ourselves to hedonism, eat, drinking, and being married? Should we enchain ourselves to uh, our Asian-American Asian immigrant expectations and enchain ourselves to an Ivy League school because that's what's going to give us freedom in life? What do we enchain ourselves to to give us the freedom that we really, really need? And I think that if we really want to experience healing and flourishing, the best thing to enchain ourselves is to Jesus. And so take a look at verse 36 where he says this. Jesus says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And what Jesus is saying in verse 36 is that he is the ultimate source and agent of freedom. Now the question is how does Jesus give us the freedom that we need? Well, uh, I, I watch a lot of Disney movies uh, now, and um, I think my favorite still, uh, despite all the, the new ones that are co constantly coming out, I think my favorite one is still Beauty and the Beast. And I think it's Beauty and the Beast because Belle is unlike any other Disney character that there is. If you're unfamiliar with Beauty and the Beast, Belle's father, Maurice, uh, is imprisoned in this castle by this, by this beast. And Belle, being the good daughter, she wants to find her dad uh, so that he can be set free. And so she stumbles into the palace, and, and it's being guarded by, by the beast, and she realizes that her father is being enchained there. And so she proposes a deal with the beast, and she says to him, I will lose my freedom so my father can gain his freedom. I will enchain myself for the sake of another so that he can be set free. And so the beast says, deal. And so she switches places with her father, and he is set free. And when the beast, you know, goes back to his room and he thinks about what she did, this substitutionary act of kindness, sacrifice, uh, being enchained for the sake of another, he is amazed at that kind of love. He's also amazed at the kind of love and kindness that she shows him despite the fact that he is the one that enchained her and slowly but surely because of that love his humanity 
is being restored over and over and over again. And when you, when you watch this movie or when you read the book, it's, it's hard not to think about Bell as a kind of Christ figure who willingly gives up his freedom for us so that we could be set free from the, sh- the chain and shackles of sin so that we don't have to live in bondage to bitterness and anger and rage anymore, but we could be set free. It's hard not to think about Christ's substitutionary act for us. And when you think about how he lost his freedom so that we could gain it, how can we not do the same for him? You know what the thing about a love relationship is? It is antithetical to a modern view of freedom. Um, when you're in a love relationships, you lose freedom. Uh, Pastor Gene and I, uh, before we were married and had kids, we used to go to Vegas every month. Those days are over. Uh, but you know what? We happily constrain ourselves to our wives and to our kids. Why? Because there's a deeper joy that we gain by losing our freedom. There's a deeper source of joy. See, you might think that Christianity is oppressive by being in a relationship with God. (laughs) But you know what Jesus says? Whoever wants to save their life must lose their life. And when you lose your life, you will not only save it, but you will find it. And then you will really be alive. And then you will really, really be free. He will set you free once and for all one day from your sin and and the curse of death. You will resurrect from the dead. You will be set free from the tyranny of death. But I also want you to know that you will be set free in the life that you are living right now. You're, You're enslaved to bitterness. You can't get out. Think about Christ's forgiveness for you. And all the times that you mess up and how patient and compassionate he is to you. And you know what? He will give you the power to forgive someone that you think that is unforgivable. You're enslaved to an addiction. Why do we turn to an addiction? It's because there's a distress in our lives, so we turn to an agent to free us from that distress. Right? And it works temporarily. And then we realize it doesn't work, so we need more intense doses of that source to assuage our distress. And then we need more intense doses of that thing. But you know what ends up happening? You feel enslaved. And that thing ultimately doesn't promise or deliver what it intends to. And then you think, I need another source. And what is that agent that can really, really give us the freedom that we need? I believe it is Jesus. You might be enslaved to trying to prove everyone wrong, your parents wrong, your friends wrong by having a successful this, a successful that. But you know what the gospel does? You don't have to prove anything to anyone. I am setting you free from this desire to please people or this this performance-oriented mentality, which is very tiring, by the way. And I'm going to set you free from that because you know what? I love you, and I don't care what you do. You have inherent dignity, value, and worth because you are my child. And I'm going to set you free from this performance mentality so that you can experience true liberation. Jesus is the only master that has come not to oppress, 
but to liberate us. So let me close with one final picture as we, as we wrap up. There is a study done with uh, school kids playing in a playground. And uh, there were, there were two, two sets of playgrounds. One had a fence around the playground. The other had no fence, no constraints. And what they discovered is that the kids that had a fence around the playground, the safeguard, tended to explore more. They tended to be a lot more creative. They, they, they wandered away from their teachers and explored the different places, where it's a, the playground that did not have limitations. The kids, the kids tended to hover near the teacher's legs more. They were less creative and they were actually less free. So here's the question for all of us. What is that right fence that will give us the freedom that we need? Is it Jesus? Is it Freud? Is it Rousseau? Is it hedonism? Is it work, money? What is that thing that will give us the freedom that we need. Think about that. And if you are a Christian, remember the words of Jesus when he says this, if you hold to my teachings, follow them, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free and you are really my disciples. Let's pray.